if we're not proactively prepared and we're rebuilding what has already been damaged to the same standard that was previously used, then we have left large segments of our society open to almost cataclysmic long-term effects from everything from, from trauma through to homelessness. Welcome to the Ripples of Radical Generosity podcast by Coralis, a global community of women and non-binary people making real progress on the world's to-do list. Together, we're transforming the world to become more equitable and sustainable. This is a special deeper dive episode of the Coralis podcast. I'm Carly Cunningham of Big Bold Brand, and today I'm in Wahi Beach, New Zealand, interviewing Kim Aiken, the founder of Aiken Frame Homes and Innovations, a Coralist venture, and of Tress House. Hey, Kim. Hi, Carly. So great to have you in our humble, rainy country. So for those of you listening, I think I brought the rain from Vancouver, and not only that, this Ontario girl who comes from the land of tornadoes also brought a tornado this week. So that's been interesting. Definitely been a, a bit of a an impactful visit so far. I think the New Zealand economy and climate has been topic of everybody's conversation, and it was really good to not have to explain to you why. Yeah, you showed up, and the next day we had our first and hopefully only tornado. Mm-hmm. And I think that even though this wasn't where we planned to go, segues well into some of the work that you've been doing. Let's roll with the subject of climate change. But for those who don't know you and what you've been up to since becoming Coralist Venture, what's two years ago, three years ago? The uh, pandemic broke the calendar in my head. 2018-19. Okay, so 18-19, so five years now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we, as we try and do the math here, staring at each other. So share with the community what you do um, from the aspect of the purpose of your venture and then how that ties back into climate change. So I am a Canadian venture. I did my venture retreat in 2019. And at the time I had started Aiken Frame Homes and we were building very much climate ready, um, high insulation, low cost affordable houses in Ontario. And that need for a low-cost, high-efficiency home came out of my own personal story around needing kind of rapid response emergency housing, and it needed to fit where I was at with my life, which translated to being ready for a future where I was the sole provider for my family, and also that I could afford to run my house and be able to run the lives of my children as well. So Aiken Frame Homes was a building company based on a process that I developed to a new way of building that would allow those metrics all to be met. Mm -hmm. And that journey in a succinct way brought me on a trade mission to New Zealand. At the time, New Zealand um, had been flagged by the United Nations as having such a significantly um, deep crisis in housing that it was borderline uh, human rights violation. And we were brought to New Zealand to really look at whether the work we had done in Canada could positively um, bring some change to the New Zealand ecosystem in affordable housing. And my first connection in New Zealand came through at the time CEO, but now Coralis with uh, well-known figures like Jenny Rudd, who handheld me into the country. Um, I met Jenny in, um, in Canada before coming to New Zealand in 2020. 
And the conversation we had over coffee resulted in a spreadsheet with the names and phone numbers of all the relevant people from legal through to banking through to um, investors. So it was really the foundation of my journey in New Zealand was CEO or Coros. Mm, so essentially the pipeline that opened up into where you've set roots. Very much. It would not have been a journey that would have happened, I don't feel, without that not just the connections and the network, but also the feeling of, you know, I'm here, but I'm not alone. And especially mm. for me, that all pivoted with COVID. I was here in country completing some of my trade mission, working with people that I had met through Jenny Rudd. And when the borders shut, because although I was working in Canada and started my venture there, um, two of the three of us were traveling on an Irish on Irish passports and we were unable to get back into Canada. So my world took a, a really sharp um, turn when lockdown happened here in New Zealand and also overseas in Canada and really without the two people whose names I knew which were Jenny Rudd and Teresa Getting um, here in New Zealand I, I don't really know how that journey would have gone otherwise. I can't think of a more perfect illustration of the value of the ask give and radical generosity story. And that's one of the things that I love about this community is, I mean, even you and I, our connection was through a call. You had shared your story. I had made a comment. You were like, I need to talk to you. And I followed up and it was very early on in my activator journey. And I was so shocked of this deep inherent trust that exists in this network. You're in this network. It means we're values aligned because you chose it for what it is. And what is the next step is almost always the next question. There isn't a tell me more about who you are. There isn't the lengthy search of the internet, the background history, the which is so much of what we do in regular everyday businesses. Can I trust this person? Do I trust this person? Are they um, validated? Are they qualified? What's their reputation? Like these layers just fall away when you're in community like this. Yeah, and I think that the word trust, I think, has come up more and more through a virtual world that we, you know, that became our only world for, for three years. A lot of people have come to realize and value the trust economy that exists in a business network, in a personal network. CEO at the time led me to um, a business network in New Zealand and I was able to get a visa. And that was purely a conversation with MJ around, I'm here, I need to be here, you know, because of circumstance, what next? And it led to almost every foundational step of me in New Zealand came from that Coralist network. And it was great to feel that that network extended beyond business. It wasn't help that I received because I was a venture. It helped that I received because I was known and there was an element of trust in the, in the relationship. And, you know, nobody really stood to gain anything specific mm -hmm. from supporting me and what I was trying to do with my life. And it was, you know, you, you can never but look back on situations like that and really deeply appreciate the, the value of trust more so than maybe any business connection. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what's been spectacular is being here with you physically, because you and I have, we met through Coralis, we've worked together, we've developed a friendship, and yet, you know, you picked me up at the airport, no questions asked. Oh, you're flying in, of course I'll come get you. And it was like, we'd known each other forever. So that's, those are the connections that 
I hold so dear in this community that because that trust is there, it just bridges so much. I want to bring some context to the work that you're doing from the bigger level, which as described to me is helping to end the housing crisis, which is a global problem. If we're looking at some of the SDGs, I'm gonna let you run with the correction on how to frame that because <laughs> I can see you thinking. Um, but I think contextually, it's a problem that I never even realized that affected my life. So I'll just let you run with that and then I'll jump back in. Yeah, I think the what I've, what I've really discovered, which is a perspective that comes and people who do business across borders will understand the, the symptoms of you know, a global housing crisis are really symptoms of systemic failures or systemic problems or complex problems that exist because of a number of factors that usually solving one of those critical elements is not enough. And I think the international perspective and the realization that what underpins, you know, New Zealand, Canada, the US, Australia is really the what's needed, what's available, and there's a really big disparity between the two. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, whether it's Canada, US, Australia, or New Zealand, which are our core business areas, the people who suffer the effects are usually the people who are in the most vulnerable position those who makes more difference to getting on the property ladder or not, or staying in a, you know, being stuck or not, or having money at the end of the week by the time they pay their rent or mortgage or not. And that's who the system is failing. And mm -hmm. that's where from our original inception in Canada, it was a personal problem for somebody like myself who found them, you know, I found myself in that position of needing to make those choices and being very fortunate to think my way out of it in some regard by coming up with a solution. And, and the passion to solve the problem is not to, in a sense of charity or in a savior mode, it's really a case of understanding a complex problem and finding pathways for people, just that little bit of a leg up to get back on that ladder and be able to make choices around self-determination and housing. And that's what it is. Systems change to introduce self-determination. Mm -hmm. And from a, what I wanted to really highlight was it affects those on the margins. However, how many families are living okay with where they are, but if something changed, they would very quickly become housing insecure. You know, that one of the spouses becomes ill and they don't have the right coverage. They have to take on a family member. Um, they have an unexpected, you know, next child to be added to the family. And all of a sudden you've hit a ceiling that you can't move beyond that barrier. And I, I wanted to illustrate that for this audience because it's not just those that we picture at the marginalized edges who are suffering this challenge of housing. Absolutely. And that sums it up. It's nobody chooses. There's a lot of focus on homelessness. And absolutely, there's a place in the conversation for, you know, the social requirements of, of society to step forward to help those who are find themselves in that position. Not a choice that most people make. But it really does come, come down to the structures and systems that perpetuate, you know, ever increasing, um, you know, real estate values, mortgage rates for pretty much 90% of the developed world right now are 
through the roof and those who are not in home ownership but in a rental scenario routinely are paying 50 to 60 percent of their income to cover not just rent there's this hyper focus on what what is your rent but really houses are not fit for purpose for this climate and a lot of that gets reflected in high bills um, you know really poor living conditions and the cost I think in New Zealand for um, for context they worked out that every dollar spent increasing the health of the home saves four dollars in healthcare because a lot wow. of the effects of what living in overcrowded or substandard housing has are on children and adults who are stressed already suffering those effects missing school ongoing healthcare, huge rates of asthma mold we found mold today in in the house we're in just you know in a very simple act of lifting something up that's been sitting it is a climate crisis you know on a big scale and how that translates down to people's day-to-day -day lives is is almost immeasurable and that's where fixing the system is probably overly ambitious but introducing step changes that can bring people into a place of health and mental wellness is absolutely all we can focus on right now mm -hmm. i'm absolutely fascinated by the layers at which you are working to solve this problem but i want to because i got a tour of it this week i <laughs> want to talk about the trust house talk to us about this special product which is in i've seen it i believe it i understand it um and even more so after walking through it but talk to us about how changing how a house is manufactured and aka the trust house talk to us about how that has is becoming a solution for change and i guess tell us what the trust house is first I will. so yes egan Rain homes in canada building company based on a on a process that I, that I designed and patented and and when we moved to New Zealand with the um, intention to introduce to the New Zealand market the for one of a better word secret sauce is that the process we have applies to an existing product which is a, the truss the truss roof that most people will have heard of or become aware of through a variety of methods that truss roof is used in 97 percent of houses in New Zealand so from a market presence from a commonality of knowledge about how to use it install it design it fabricate it what we are doing is taking a an existing process and, and adding additional um, process upgrades that allows the people who make roof systems to now make full house systems and that's a lot of words and there's a, a good <laughs> visual online but we've been able to simplify what it is to build a house and yeah. we've been able to do it in a way that does not require us to establish factories it does not require us to upskill you know groups and teams of people and what we're doing is leveraging or sweating what is already existing to produce more of an outcome and i think if you're looking at it solely from a business standpoint it's it's really introducing efficiencies in a way that double and quadruple your output mm -hmm. which is unheard of and the the joy of trying to introduce a product to a new market which consists of a huge amount of regulation and testing and standards and certification all of that was was bypassed because this this process was already certified in New Zealand so we were able to step into the market probably at a really awkward time given COVID had just started but with a build ready process that did not require capital investment mm -hmm. and that is maybe you know, when we look at the system that's already stressed and strained from a product standpoint, also from a, a knowledge around new process, but also really at the end of the day around people. Mm -hmm. 
and the construction industry has gone through boom bust boom bust since you know houses were first conceived and trades are overworked trades are you know they're an aging trade base certainly north america and here in new zealand and what the need is so outstrips what's available in the market that this has become a almost oppressively unsolvable problem and we've committed a time with a product that can be built 80 different places simultaneously in the country and that is what trust house is designed to do we renamed it trust house um, to really give a visual and a simplification um, in the market here and then it took us a little while but we built one and what we were aiming to do was was create a touch point for people to come understand see feel appreciate the simplicity and then be able to take the next steps to introducing it into their own lives or into their own communities and we've been very deliberate in New Zealand about working on a business-to-business basis and that's that's been key different to the Canadian market and also in the strategic way with community groups who have community input that they can use to create the right house for what their people need there is a very strong thought process at the moment almost globally that building houses in factories and standardizing them and making them all the same and that is you know producing at high volume model t style any color as long as it's black and it looks like this is (laughs) is going to be the solution and the level the level of depth that we really started to deep dive in New Zealand ourselves was, well, if there's a problem, there's got to be a cause. Mm-hmm. And what is the cause of that problem? And could this problem be fixed by a box that is assigned to a person or a family that looks like every other box and really 90% of the time does not meet the needs of what that family looks like? That's um, a key component for us is can we put something into the market that is above what's required from a insulation um, performance standpoint, easy to build, easy to maintain, but fundamentally flexible for those who need a house to be more than just a government prescribed box. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that are visual, I wanna jump in on a visual description of the trust house and I'm going to um, include some photos for this post and we'll find a place that you can access them. Um, because they do have some amazing uh, 3D printed examples. But essentially, um, for those who don't know what a truss is, if you imagine driving by a construction site and you see the triangles of the roof or whatever shape the roof is, roof is, but traditionally you think triangles are roof and those get produced in the truss manufacturing facility. So instead of just producing the roof, the whole frame of the house can be produced in this facility. And as we've talked about it this week, um, those pieces are all joined together and they go up like ribs. And it makes it much, Kim's smiling because I've learned it. Um, (laughs) And they, I think you were telling me, I was amazed at the reduction in time. So houses require to be framed and that's when you see the woodworking go up you know two by fours two by sixes whatever the prescribed is for the country and the location if it is indeed right for the country and location I mean so many homes as you were saying just traditional home building is not set up for the weather well and the changing climate and how do we make homes breathable but I'm going down a rabbit hole tell us about the time saving alone which equals cost saving once 
an architect decides to use this methodology, a builder decides to use your trust system, what's the time savings? Yeah, great question. So along the, you know, simplified design process, which we, we don't need to get too deeply into, um, lead time, so the time you're waiting for a trust fabrication factory to, to put a product out is, is a couple of weeks. So a product being a house? Yeah, in this case, yeah, product being a house system. And then on site, we assembled the house here in about an hour and 40 minutes, which was everything standing. That was the amount of time we needed, you know, mechanical lift, um, which is at the point that the builders who were on site, two of them um, were able to kind of close the building in and have it ready to be weatherproof. And I think we're at about day seven of trade time. Um, the house in amongst all our weather events <laughs> yeah. is ready for windows it's already been insulated and it's already got its um, wonderful air tightness membrane on the inside so we could in effect be putting on uh, some finishing on the inside electrical going in and our windows will be in pretty quickly and that point we're looking at maybe about a 10 to 12 days of trade time compared to if that was a traditional build of that size, uh, guys on site, probably about half, um, mm -hmm. half of the time, the comparable for when we talk about a full size, you know, family home that's got more complexity around plumbing and bathrooms, we're looking at about a 20 to 40% less um, trade time across, across all the trades. And that's really key um, when there is a shortage of trades. Yeah. And what we're doing is we're pulling steps that would normally be taken on site back into the factory, which is which is fundamentally the premise of of the movement globally right now to build houses and factories. But we're doing it without the premium that you would normally have if you purchase a house or a house system out of the factories. You've got the overhead of that factory, that staff, you know, their profit margin plus all their carrying costs. And we've worked that we're about 10% of what that traditional house in a factory premium would be. So mm -hmm. we're able to use existing factories. They're the people that are working in those factories are, are doing multiple projects and ours is just one of them. And we've been able to remove this premium that you would typically pay to have a rapid system available to assemble. And, and that's really key in the market right now because you know, with material prices alone going up 30%, mm -hmm. that is, you know, we can only take the small wins as we find them. Well, and when we're talking about even just here. Um, when communities like Hawks Bay need shelter put up for families, they're literally, you know, flattened. There's people they weren't insured or insurance wouldn't cover natural disaster, whatever the circumstance, these people need homes and they need them now, not a year from now, not six months from now, they need them now. So, um, that's, this is a very viable solution. One of the interesting pieces is your trust house, which is fully enclosed right now has now withstood two major weather events, a cyclone. And we literally the other morning stood there and watched it. Probably we shouldn't have been, but it took us a while to actually clue in that it was a tornado because they don't happen here, which is why I got blamed for bringing <laughs> it. Um, but we watched it blow by less than probably what, two blocks away. And the truss house has stood, the cyclone has stood <laughs> the tornado and the only thing there was one piece of metal siding that was bent and that's because it wasn't attached to the wood because that's where the window was supposed to go and it was just literally a, a, a weather protection so 
um, the fact that this structure is, we, I was joking with my wife the other day and she goes, well, there should be a stamp of approval that says tornado proof <laughs> and cyclone proof. So it just speaks to the quality of the build and moving forward, what needs to happen around the world, which can be adjusted very quickly and easily within a trust factory in software. Yeah, so. absolutely. And it's, it's, I was talking today with a business group about, um, I had recorded a, a podcast and very technically um, around the trust house system in December and I was I was describing my my understanding or my impression of of how climate change would affect the industry and, and the construction industry and I, I that podcast got released last week and I listened and, and heard myself <laughs> describe quite detailed in a quite detailed way that the, um, the climate change would present itself as weather events and those weather events would you know, force us to respond, not, not proactively, but, but after these events with solutions and fundamentally at the moment, there is no preparedness for that. Mm -hmm. And we've experienced that rather unfortunately in New Zealand. And we talked, I talked about extreme heat, um, like experienced in North America last year, talked about the effect of, of hurricanes. I, I talked about hurricane, um, you know, major wind events. And then obviously there's the flood which which came to New Zealand twice, you know, in the last six weeks. Um, and, and really, if we're not proactively prepared and we're rebuilding what has already been damaged to the same standard that was previously used, then we have left large segments of our society open to almost repeating the event cataclysmic long-term effects from everything from from trauma through to homelessness you know mm -hmm. there is no there are nine thousand people displaced in one region of new zealand right now due to flood effects and there are no plans in place there are no factories there is nothing set up in this in this country and in most countries to deal with that level of of significant displacement of peoples and not that trust house is the only answer but the driver behind the original conception of the system is what can we do with what we have what we have right now is all we have to to use to prepare and from our perspective with you know 80 factories that are spread around the country then you know we can and we have calculated already that that set of factories could build 17,000 houses a year so we're all we are the only scalable solution who it won't matter if they don't and that's fundamentally the the crux of investment in climate resilience is everything we need is already here. Mm -hmm. And that's been echoed quite a lot in the last few weeks. It's just being prepared to use it and having a process in place to allow people to, to really push change so that the next event which to be honest in New Zealand, there's three or four weeks between events right now, not years. Mm -hmm. Um, that we're ready. Well, we were, you looked at your phone and you said, oh, here we go again. The media is fear-mongering and they're saying there might be another storm off the coast. And I'm like, please don't tell my mother <laughs> who's in Canada watching the news every night because I'm here. But I think what strikes me in this part of the conversation in this point in time from a bigger perspective is, is timing. And what is so interesting is you landed in New Zealand at the right time. And there's always that, you know, is it luck? Is it hard work? It is both. But when the two come together and the timing of your building the trust house, it was the intention that this would be the training pod. Yeah. 
And so I'm very excited that as the word gets out and as people know and realize the solution is here, you can now physically demonstrate to folks what it is and they can walk in it. And I mean, I've been waiting, what, five years? <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of, it was a definitely a magical moment to walk in and understand the differences and how it's built. And, you know, a house, when you're standing in it and it's complete and the, you know, the chandelier is hung and the dining room table is placed, it's hard to imagine it not being a complex process but it isn't because I've seen my father build a house as a non-tradesman he built our cottage and he framed our basement so I understand what goes into that but also you've simplified it even further to make it more accessible to the world which is very exciting speaking of building things I'm going to transition I've become aware that network building building the necessary connections and strategic relationships around ourselves as business owners as entrepreneurs, um, as visionaries, we we need to do that as business owners, but not everyone. And I'm in fact, I find in women in business community, it's not a skill that we were taught and it's not a skill that's easily learned because nobody's talking about the importance of it. You know, everybody says, oh, you need a banker and a lawyer and a this and the professional services, but nobody talks about the scaffolding of people around you who support you when you know the winds kick up and things get unstable and you know just having that network around you given that the pandemic lockdowns trapped you in New Zealand which was not your home you were here with your two boys on a trade mission so effectively you've gotten on a plane with the intention to go back home where you had to have built yourself a house talk to us about the steps you took and you've already talked about the the introductions that were made, which were kind of the priceless pieces of the equation. But I would love for you to share how you then went about building your network and the relationships that have led to what is clear to me, a very well-formed scaffolding around you and the business. Yeah. And I think building a business in the pandemic might be a whole, you know, body of work for researchers and you know people studying business for the next couple of decades but the the isolation factor of new country and lockdowns and living on a boat living on a boat (laughs) became almost a necessity you know which is part of my my journey in New Zealand was finding my people and you know we were so fortunate to be in Waihi Beach um we had been there a few months prior and had connected with the principal of the school. Um, and that was our, our really only touch point outside of, of the Coralus Geo group of people that we knew. And where there's children, generally there's, you know, there's, there's parents and people to talk to. So there was very much a surface conversation, you know, some nice parents who were very welcoming. I know we arrived straight from the CEO event in Toronto. We got a plane that day, flew to New Zealand. And, um, you know, we came with the words COVID and, or I guess it was coronavirus. And people here were going, Is that oh. fear? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's scaremongering. You know, there was a real resistant um, idea around it. And two weeks later, the country was in lockdown, but we were so fortunate to be out of it. So six weeks later, New Zealand was COVID free, back to normal. Kids were at school. And, you know, the, the the dawning realization, I guess, for, for us as a family was, you know, this was our home, but also the people at home were not out of it. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, 
trapped into a cycle of um, you know of lockdowns and and etc cetera, etc cetera. so we almost were even more isolated from our family and, and from our friends although they were at home we were living a life we were we took up sailing you know we we purchased a little boat to have a project to do we met fellow sailors it was it was almost that new lease at life mm-hmm. we felt really um, drawn to, to have an adventure um, and that was that was probably the at the time, looking back, bravest slash stupidest thing, you know, in, in the moment to come out of a of a pandemic lockdown in a, in a new country and take on a whole new, you know, world, which was for us, you know, the sailing world and the sailing community. And, and it was that experience of meeting other families who had been traveling the world, living on their boats with their kids, with their families actually was such a find yourself dropped onto a different planet almost mm-hmm. and that was transformational for for us as a family to meet such adventurous people and suddenly not be talking business and not be worried about strategy it was like there's actually a balance because every one of those families whether they were blogging whether they had sold real estate you know whether they were running online business you know every one of them had made a conscious decision to to set their life up to to live a different way, very intentionally, homeschooling children. And all of a sudden, I almost kind of transitioned from my business is my life to my business allows me to potentially live a life that I would never have lived before. And I think that distinction, especially in a socially minded business, the the pressure I had felt to solve the problem faster and, and get everything done and, and, you know, output, 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 you know, I was working 16, 18 hours a day, mm-hmm. seven days a week around parenting, around, you know, high growth, around building houses. It, it was, it was almost frantic and it gave me a moment of time to step and say, how do I want to run my business? So mm-hmm. we had assumed at that point, starting the business in New Zealand, once I got a visa that we would just start building houses. And I, I kind of recognized that, I would be back to working 18 hours a day, making small impact. Like we Mm -hmm. did a lot in Canada, but we never would have been able to scale to create the impact that Mm -hmm. we wanted to do. So the the journey became clearly the problem here is very similar to the problem in Canada. Nothing I've seen, nothing I've read, nothing I've heard indicates that it is not the same problem. So without really getting into understanding what's the root cause, why are people experiencing this problem? Why is this problem that not have a solution? And it became a journey of no assumptions. We we were so fortunate to connect with, with the Maori community. You know, we talk about marginalized communities, people with, you know, issues around housing. And, and when you start with a country where hundreds of thousands of people have been historically displaced from their land, who are now working in economies and working in businesses that was not their, you know, it's not within their nature to Mm -hmm. do so. And for whom their land was taken and is now the basis for some of the wealthiest areas in the country and, you know, five to $10 million houses, that is a, you know, we took the primal wound we talked about that, Mm -hmm. that almost cannot be healed. So the assumption that people who are in that scenario who are hugely driven and hugely capable and are running some of the largest, most successful enterprise in New Zealand around restoration of culture and and housing for their people. That was what we were drawn to quite strongly Mm -hmm. is how do we work with the community? How do we 
transfer our knowledge and allow that knowledge to become you know part of a new knowledge system that was focused not just on putting out houses but you know upskilling people creating micro business there were so many avenues that we really started to align with what what that restorational culture looks like and housing was such a key component um, a maori community will not willy-nilly rip up green land that has never been touched and put oh, terribly cheap and underperforming boxes onto their land with huge respect for that mindset the land is a living thing and you know it's really not conscionable just slice it up and dice it up and check some crappy boxes on there and expect everybody to be happy so it was we were the ones learning I think we came with a with a certain confidence and realized that this we weren't in Kansas anymore and, <laughs> and if this was going to take effect it needed to take effect with community not mm -hmm. for community we weren't here to solve anything for anyone so that was probably the biggest point of learning and the point of difference in our approach I'm curious within that community what lessons of community have you learned is that have they changed your perspective of community have they changed the way you approach building and nurturing community yeah almost almost 100 percent. i think what um and some of the research work and you know you've heard us talk about this um researcher dr engineer cole that we've connected with the understanding that for a community to function the members within that community need to be values aligned within themselves. So if we think about the more traditional, you know, and, and for those who live that life, get up, go to work, spend all day in an office, commute an hour each way, come home, spend a couple of hours in your box, you know, watching Netflix, having dinner, you know, whatever the, whatever the grind mm -hmm. that, that people have this kind of perception around the grind for 40 years and then I own my house outright because I paid an additional $350,000 back as a mortgage and that grind gives me a freedom to go and live my life at a certain age you know that that way of having a life is not strongly supported in cultures who are who are land connected at the very start that is not a life from mm -hmm. that perspective so family and fano and, and and extended your house is your base to to do all the wonderful things mm -hmm. bring your family together there's a very some lovely you know research and learning around how how a house should function how a house should be oriented the breathing of the house you know the teenagers have their own area you know it's all very much set up in a way that the people in the house get to use it mm -hmm. as a house and what's happened we did a lot of learning in indigenous communities in northern ontario and manitoba is that the house if it's overcrowded if it's stressed if it becomes a place of you know wall-to-wall -wall mattresses and that changes the culture that changes people's happiness we've been in houses here in new zealand that are housing you know 20 to 30 people and the kitchen is wall-to-wall -wall cookers and stovetops and toasters it's it's almost like a, a commercial activity mm -hmm. and that's because that house has the space for the overflow of people and you know you cannot but start to recognize the patterns in displaced people needing to find a place of that is their own and that will never be designed by someone else because it will never work well it will never be home it will never be home hmm. so with what's next for Tress House here in New Zealand, as this becomes the primary model for you, 
what are the next few big challenges that you're facing? And I say it that way because I'm throwing it out to the to the listeners of listen and think about how if you have a solution, if you have an idea and how that might help. Because I know that, you know, we've had so many conversations where you're like, hey, what about this? And what about that? And we've bounced back to each other ideas that we've never thought of. And so I'm just seeding that for the community of, you know, ways of connecting and ways of building relationship. Who knows what could come of what you're about to say next. So biggest challenges you're heading into next. I think at the moment, because we are reacting, the country, uh, the world, we're still reacting to fallout from the last few years. Our biggest challenge is, is we've recognized we need to demonstrate there is much conversation there are many studies we are at the point where we need to demonstrate not just pathways to a solution but pathways to hope pathways to the belief that something can be done mm-hmm. you know we are almost at the point i feel of certainly from a mental health perspective and talking to people people are are borderline starting to feel hopeless mm-hmm. and that for us the challenge is We've, we've undertaken a project um, here in New Zealand with the intention to create what is called the Buoyant Foundation. So houses, trust house systems, which are climate ready, um, locally built, highly efficient in their, you know, in their operation, which in themselves are ready for, you know, extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme wind. Um, how can we be ready for flooding? And, mm-hmm. and that is based on the research of, of some incredible people overseas. What does it look like to put a buoyant foundation, so a, a floating foundation underneath a truss house, not to do anything um, you know, that hasn't been done? We're not looking to recreate the wheel, but we're looking to see how can this get integrated into New Zealand and become open sourced. We're mm-hmm. really at the point right now where we're looking to put some financial significant amount of financial um, security in the bank so that we can really focus on open sourcing this solution mm-hmm. and making not just you know climate resilient housing part of the conversation buoyant foundations what else do people need you know where is the industry going that we can bring what we have to the table in a way that allows it to be there for everybody. You know, we monetize because we own the rights and the patents and the systems. Our intention was always to upfront take a small fee that covers our overhead and our costs and allows continuous development of our intellectual property. And the, you know, at this point, 98% of the value of that build stays in the community. And that mm-hmm. for us is not that the 2% is an impediment right now, but we're able to integrate at at a high level of government, at a high level of community, without the conflict potentially of also owning the system that is is one of the viable solutions. There are many people with deep pockets and, and, and big brains who are also in parallel to what we are doing. There is no shortage of need, and there is a space for every solution in New Zealand right now. And that support industry-wide has not been evident. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of conversation. There is a lot of money but what's missing are pathways to implementation the money at the top and the people on the ground there is a real disconnect right now about getting the money into some tangible form that is also what is asked for and needed at the ground level so our Mm. our biggest challenge is not just modeling that with viable solutions it's doing it and then supporting others to do it 
in every way we can. And so it's not government showing up as colonizers again to say, we have a solution. Exactly. Here are your boxes. You know, Merry Christmas. Be grateful. Move on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And there's no, there's no flaw. There's no, there's no malintent. There's nobody who's in this at any level, government or otherwise, who feels they are doing anything other than what they can do with what they have. Mm -hmm. And I and think approaching... what they have is often knowledge. Yeah. So it's knowledge. overcoming the knowledge systems that that is not necessarily the right way to approach this. But so many people haven't thought about it differently. Yeah. And, and not everybody has the luxury of of being able to, as we have, kind of deep dive into the underlying cause and be able to connect in person with communities. And, and if we can be that bridge, if we can be the conduit in the system to, to put our hands up and say, we understand your problem and your limitations and your intent, you know, from a, from a local government standpoint, for want of a better word, and we're able to, to step in grassroots level and, and take the time to really create those bridges whether it's knowledge whether it's it's product whether it's people skills you know that's where we see our best value at the moment mm -hmm. so i'm gonna run with the ask as the last question so two pieces to this are there connections that folks listening can make that could help bridge that gap that you were talking about between government and community what introductions or connections or doors open do you need in New Zealand or possibly even you know because you work in other countries as well what doors do you need opened right now to get your license into the trust houses to get the trust houses building to just create the the chain of events that needs to happen to create these thousands of homes every year yeah that's a great absolutely Great and fantastic question. We're definitely at a crux and at a turning point. And I think the, the door is open where we feel we're maybe not um, strong in our business operations is that we we don't do government speak. And the way the government and government's also a very broad brush away out, you know, the, the procurement process or the delivery process or or the model that exists, there are very there's very few avenues to create innovation on the side or, you know, create a whole new pathway. So the delivery arm of government housing, and we've had um, some awesomely um, insightful connection recently in, in the province of New Brunswick in Canada in understanding that system and, and seeing how what we have can, can bring value is really connecting with that implementation arms. And what that looks like in New Zealand is there are large construction companies who are delivering community housing on behalf of government. There are um, more of the philanthropic backed, you know, Habitat for Humanity organizations. There are lots of people whose role in, in the process is delivery. And that is where a lot of the roadblocks exist. So at the moment, we're very clear on who our customer is. Mm -hmm. We know we're business to business. We know we work really well with organizations who have hit a, a roadblock, usually around process or people. Mm -hmm. Usually for us, we've recognized that these are organizations who are not based in the core center of the city. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of regional demand that is not being met because of smaller scale of projects or, or just distance, physical distance from the decision-making centers. And we can bring a lot of value to those organizations. And in a lot of cases, because A, we don't really 
we don't have an ad campaign or we don't market in that regard. We have a hundred percent referral is how we work in what we're doing here in New Zealand. And it would be really good to open some more conversation at this critical time while these organizations we recognize are up to their eyes, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in managing what they're currently doing is, is that trust economy. Hey, I know these people, they're doing these things. They have a great housing system. Would you have a conversation with them? So what I'm hearing is if you know of anyone who is at the level of government or in producing mass housing, who is hit a wall or desperately seeking a solution, that is the conversation. You would love to be connected to those people who have a viable solution and we know it works. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. People with typically with either land, that's a, a big component. A lot of organizations have land and money, but no product, or they've got a product and land, but they don't have funding. You know, they've got a product idea. They don't so have funding. So product being houses. Product being houses. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's a trifecta. You know, you need the land, you need the money, and you need the product. Mm-hmm. Quite often delivery delivery of, of houses is a major issue with shortage of people, or there is not land, which we have a, a solution for. And if the funding is not available because we sit in a different stream, certainly around, you know, climate resilience really translates to high energy efficiency housing that meets 2030 or beyond code, then we can leverage that to help the funding continuum. And those are three areas we've worked across in New Zealand. Fantastic. Any other ask that you have for the community? How can we help? At this point, we're still learning. I think the journey that we've taken is by no means the only journey. And I love to hear from people who've got a scenario, a story, an idea, you know, any element of experience that that lends a new perspective or or even reinforces the pathways that we're on. You know, everybody knows somebody affected by by housing insecurity and yeah, we don't need to only talk to large corporations. We would love to hear from people on their journey, on their stories. And I spoke to a lady today who had lived through some housing insecurity, and she's she's got a you know she's got a property that up until the moment we talked about flood resilient um, houses, she's she's been too anxious to build on. You know, there are there are people who for whom climate change is is deeply affecting beyond the physical and if we can start the conversation and and continue the conversation and share the stories and the resources that we have then you know we need to do that so fantastic and how can people reach out to you where do they find you to be honest linkedin is my best connection point we have a website we have an email address linkedin is a really good resource um, at the moment for me is where i spend a good portion of my time connecting so it's search Kim Aiken on LinkedIn and you will find me. Um, trusthouse.org is the New Zealand website and aikenframe.ca is the Canadian website. Fantastic. Thank you for your time and your stories and taking us deeper today. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming to visit and thank you for persevering with all the excitement that we've had. <laughs> Well, for the most part, aside from watching recycling bins fly through the air, it's been an absolute (laughs) pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Ripples of Radical Generosity podcast. Let us know what you thought of the episode and share this podcast with your friends. 
we invite you to join a global community of radically generous women and non-binary folks at www.coralis.world.